Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jingle! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to grow three inches taller. Uh, Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Liquid IV and Keeps. More about them in a little bit. Okay, getting back to the grand tradition of COVID podcasting, uh, we have another guest who's never been on, who I wanted on for a very long time, and also consistent with the last episode with Jonathan Adler, uh, getting guests on who I first met in the nineteen in the early or mid nineteen nineties, um, and have stayed friendly with ever since. Today we have uh, Will Salatan uh, of Slate Magazine, and um, one of my favorite. Uh, liberal writers out there, not to put a label on them or anything like that. And uh, welcome to the show. Uh, Will, what's your actual title over there? Uh, I have the, uh, I have as many syllables as I could get. So it's national correspondent. Really? And and, and do you do much national corresponding? I mean, like you go around the country a lot, are you reporting or is it just a no, it's like a, it was a general. So I was the political correspondent and then I didn't want to do politics anymore. And so I looked at the New York Times website and I saw that everything that wasn't politics was national. And I thought I would like to have the option to write about anything I want. So I thought national was a good word for being able to write whatever you wanted. I like it. I like it. Um, is it so first of all, we should disclose to readers uh, a million years ago, uh, when I was still technically in the AEI building, but not actually working for AEI, it's complicated without the benefit of being interesting, but when I was a television <laughs> producer working for uh, a, a scholar at AEI named Ben Wattenberg, the production company that we used um, rented office space from the top floor of AEI, as did this little obscure internet startup called Slate. And so basically almost every day at lunch, the guys from this company, New River Media, where I work, and the guys from Slate would have lunch together. And uh, Will was one of those guys. Among them was also Dave Plotz, uh, Frank Four, Seth um, Stevenson, um, and, uh, and and then some other people who parachuted in and out, Mickey Kaus, Michael Kinsley, and that kind of thing. But uh, this was like the Pleistocene era in Slate where it was still had that kind of funky 80s 90s new republic vibe of neoliberal you know neoliberal hawkish counterintuitive all that kind of stuff and you are like the japanese soldier um still <laughs> fighting that war on the uh on the island of i mean am i, am I being unfair slate has gotten decidedly no, I, more I, liberal 
Oh, it, it has. It has. But like, I mean, it's part of the polarization of media. But I, I mean, I love this story because um, what you have identified is, I mean, this is like an archaeological dig. It's a site. Uh, the fact that Slate was at AEI is something that people would be shocked to hear today, right? Because yeah. that's impossible. They're too far apart. But in fact, um, that was an era when left and right uh, had more overlap in the middle. And that was a physical overlap that today would be almost unthinkable. And that's sad that we've lost that. Yeah, we, we had right-wing eggheads sit down at lunch with us sometimes. We'd have conversations and there'd be some disagreements or whatever, but it was all perfectly civil and the lunch was subsidized, which you made fun of us for being hypocritical for that. But we were like, it's private sector subsidized. So just don't, you know, you're the hypocrite. And uh, that was the end of it. But anyway, um, I just think people should know that, that we actually go a ways back. And um, uh, so when you made the switch from being a political correspondent to a national correspondent um, in that time, have you grown even more disgusted with politics or are you, two, two separate questions? Because I think they're possible to do both. Have you gotten more disgusted, but also more interested because of the rise of Trump? Yeah, well, I, I was not, in, I did not intend to cover politics for the last four years. Uh, yeah. I thought that I, like all the other idiots, I thought Hillary was going to win. I thought it was going to be a sort of a boring mainstream Democratic administration. I had a couple of ideas that were politically related, but I, I and so after Trump got elected, all of a sudden I just had to go back to it. Um, uh, I, I viewed Trump's election as a national emergency. I think it's been an emergency the whole time. I'm, I'm actually relieved it hasn't been worse than it's been. And so I've covered politics during this period. And I'm really looking forward to Trump losing. I really hope he loses and I'm not wrong again, uh, in part so that I can stop paying so much attention to politics. And there's probably a lot of Americans like me who are just like, didn't want to pay attention, want to go back to not paying attention. And when Trump says stuff like, you know, if I lose, you'll never hear from me again. There are a lot of people who are like, where can I go to pull that lever? Yeah. So I think, I mean, we should talk about all this, but I, I think this point, which is one I've made a version of for a while now, I think has more to do with Biden's lead in the polls than anything else. It's just that there are an enormous number of Americans who just, re whether they like Trump's policies or li they like Trump himself, um, or they're reliable Republican voters or not, whether, you know, which I think is most people, but um, is that they're, they just resent the fact that he's in our headspace constantly. They re I mean, I, I, I'm an inveterate eavesdropper. And so like when I go to airports and restaurants, just you listen to people's conversations. And I think people are sick of having to have an opinion of having to discuss all this kind of stuff. And that's that's the key to the return to normalcy part of it, right? Is just like, you know, Sleepy Joe. Sleepy Joe's not a scary nickname. And people are just like, you know, I'm glad we got the judges, whatever. I mean, I'm talking about from my side of the aisle, but enough. And all you need is 10, 15% of people on the on my side of the aisle to feel that way. And that's the makings of a landslide, right? Yeah. I yeah, it's just, I'm, I keep remembering back in, in the early days of Trump, uh, I had a conversation with David Rennie at The Economist, who is now in Beijing, I think. But he said, you know, it, fatigue, don't underestimate the power of fatigue. And over the long yeah. term, that's what, that's what seems to be prevailing. I mean, it's, I think it's not just fatigue. I think that Trump, for various personality reasons, just antagonizes people who might otherwise agree with a lot of his policies. And 
those two factors together uh, make put him in a worse position in the polls than he had to be. Um, okay, so in the grand in 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 the in the grand world of of Trump opposition, there are basically I want to say two broad schools, um, and one is the sort of he's an authoritarian, would-be dictator, threat to democracy, um, you know, the kind of thinking that has Steve Schmidt calling a Jewish reporter from commentary um, a Nazi collaborator, right? This sort of, uh, this is Weimar Germany, 1933 kind of talk, right? And then there's the other school of thought, which says he's a grifter, a con man, unfit for the job, not really up to the job, we are incredibly lucky that he doesn't know how to do the job. He would rather be, he's basically the pundit in chief who likes to heckle rather than actually run the show. I am decidedly in the second camp. Um, just so you know, where, where do you come down? But, and I'm not saying there's no overlap between the Venn diagrams, but where do you come down on those two sides? Okay. I'm in the overlap. Um, I'm okay. in the, I, I, I lean toward the second. Um, he is primarily, um, venal and incompetent. Um, but, he has, here's the way I'd put it. Uh, he has authoritarian instincts. Um, he doesn't have an authoritarian plan. He doesn't have the talent of, an, of a successful authoritarian. So am I afraid that he would take, like, for example, let's take the concrete question. Is he going to step down and leave the White House if he loses the election? And my answer is yes, he's going to do that. Um, and he's going to do that because he doesn't want the power that bad. If he wanted the power that bad and he had the talent to do it, you know, he would, he would fight, but he, he's just vain, right? He just, he wants to never admit that he lost the election. He's not admitting that he lost the popular vote in 2016. He's not going to admit that he legitimately lost the most ballots in, or even the electoral college in 2020, but he'll leave and he'll leave and he'll go to one America or wherever he wants to go to run a media empire and try to pay off the $400 million he owes. Um, but yeah, he's not, I mean, a guy just doesn't come out of being a, a self-serving businessman this whole time and become Saddam Hussein. That's just not who he is. So my personality analysis of Donald Trump is he is a grifter. He's selfish. He doesn't give a damn about Democratic or Republican norms. He'll step over anything. But, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly afraid that he has the will to push through because he just doesn't want the power enough. So you do a lot of science stuff, at least you used to do a lot of science stuff, and you, you know a bit about evolutionary psychology and all that, right? I want to throw a theory by you. Go that, for um, One of the reasons why, and I think you're right, he does have authoritarian instincts. He likes strong men. He talks up strong men. He, he ridicules democratic allies. There's a lot of sort of Tony Soprano talk in him, in part because I think he grew up around it. Um, but I, I, I don't want to get deep in the weeds of, of Theodore Adorno, but I think the, 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 the sort of authoritarian personality that he put forward was garbage. But there is something to this idea, it seems to me, that the, the there's, a, that there's a natural archetype in human nature that manifests itself on every schoolyard, everybody's encountered it a hundred times of just sort of a natural bully, 
right? There's a, it's, it's one of these 20 different types of human beings that we've all in, encountered. It's very male. It's very narcissistic. It's very vain and all that kind of stuff. And it seems to me that the, because of Trump's unrestrained id, uh, and his, 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 his hyper attenuated lizard brain that you can actually see how more sophisticated authoritarians were playing into male tropes about like the big man and the Uber man and all that kind of stuff. And, but because there's no ideological cleverness to it whatsoever, there's, it's not adorned with any intellectual theory. People forget Mussolini was a serious intellectual, you know, um, even Stalin could write theoretical Marxist claptrap, right? There was some, is that it gives no intellectuals anything to hang on other than just sort of alpha male worship. And I think it's kind of useful in that sense because it illuminates what is, what is a major component to a traditional form of authoritarianism is just the strong man. And you kind of see it in him. Does that make any sense to you? Oh yeah. I mean, well, first of all, you've got some polling to back you up in the, the, just the gender gap, right? Men seem particularly, uh, I mean, the fact Trump's like holding about even with men, I think some, something like that, yeah. which is remarkable. And women are just like two to one or something like that against him. So clearly like there's something about Trump that's appealing to a lot of men's identities or egos. Um, it's, but you're right that he has no Never mind, like, you know, he doesn't have, there's no logic to what he does or says. It's all about vanity. And um, it's almost like a weird experiment. Like, it makes me feel like I'm watching an early religion. Like, part of the way religion works is you have some guy who later becomes known as a prophet. And often the person is pretty crazy, you know, probably has some undiagnosed mental illness, has certainly has various issues. And they just do a lot of weird stuff. They contradict themselves. And then the followers just go around trying to rationalize it all. And it's an endless, fascinating process of rationalization. And the fact that this guy, just because he's sort of pathetic, doesn't mean that the same phenomenon isn't happening. I, I feel like what we're watching with uh, congressional Republicans and you know his TV spinners and people in his administration is he's this completely worthless person goes around doing a series of things that have no logic at all other than his own self-aggrandizement and his own ego. And they try to make sense of it every day. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a certain amount of, um, it's like a little bit madness to King George kind of thing, except they kind of knew that King George was mad when he was losing it. Um, mm -hmm. but no, I, I agree. There's a, there's, there's a, I knew, and we should be fair. I think most personally, I talk to a lot of Republicans who they get it, you know, and this is one of my great peeves of the last, and I'm, I'm a broken record on this, is that I think the median Republican isn't the MAGA crowd person. It's the, like most of my friends and relatives who like Trump, it's the person who says, yeah, look, yeah, he's, he's a bonehead. He's, he's his own worst enemy. I like the judges. I like this. I like that. And I hate the Democrats and blah, 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 blah. The problem is, the way uh, main the way mass right wing media works, you're not allowed to make that case. You have to be all in for his genius and all of that, and so it distorts the image that um, the people like you 
get on the outside of the fishbowl? Because all you're hearing from, and Republican elected officials have to do it too, because the base will be furious with them. They, and so you get this reinforcement of what is in fact, or at least was, a somewhat fringy position on the right as now the mainstream position on the right. And then you, you do that for four years, and then people think, oh my gosh, it actually becomes the mainstream <laughs> position of the right. And it's, it's, I think the damage being done by uh, opinion shows on Fox, by Fox and Friends, and look, I'm a Fox News contributor for reasons that we can debate some other day. Uh, and the way talk radio and these guys have, have refused to allow the idea that he's a very flawed, corrupt guy who we are using on an instrumental basis, not allowing that argument to have any room has done lasting damage to the right. Because if I were a liberal writer, if I were a normal Democrat, if I were an independent, and I hadn't heard that case from any conservative for four years, I might think that no conservative believes that. And yet I think a lot of conservatives actually do believe that. So, so what you're telling me is for people like me, when we're watching uh, these Republican members of Congress on Fox News, we're not hearing insanity, we're hearing insincerity. Depends. Um, some people have drunk the Kool-Aid. I mean, that's for sure. Um, um, and some people are so whorish and idiotic, Matt Gates comes to mind, that uh, it is a futile and too generous approach to worry about whether he's being sincere or not, because he's just so, you know, I mean, it's like the first guy out of the trenches in the battle before the bugle even starts, you know, he's committed regardless of what his motivations are. And so he's, I mean, his jackassery is, is unto itself, but yes, to a certain extent, the number of Republicans I've met on Capitol Hill who say one thing when the cameras are on and a completely different thing when the cameras are off about Donald Trump is shocking. Um, that number has shrunk over time as the Kool-Aid drinking has progressed, but um, and as the more tr Trump critical people have left. But yeah, there are. I think there are an enormous number of Republicans on Capitol Hill who don't like the idea of losing the presidency or losing the Senate, who very much would like to see the guy go. Okay, let me ask you this. I'll ask you two versions of it. What do you think and what do they think? And the question is, if Trump loses and uh, let's say that the Republicans lose the Senate, um, we have President Biden next year, a couple of years. Do you believe, or maybe I should ask it in terms of how long will it take for people to forget that Republicans made this bargain? Like Republicans say they want, let's say they want to go back to being the party that they used to be. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know how far back you can go but they certainly want to pretend that Trump was just a passing thing and it, that he doesn't define them. Do you think that will work? And do Republicans think it will work? Okay, so answering the second part first, lots of Republicans think it'll work. There's a shocking number of people, of Republicans, who really do believe that they can just do a... Um, uh, you know, what was his name? Um, Patrick Duffy in the shower from Dallas, where they just decided like two seasons of Dallas had got them into some sort of cul-de-sac. And so they just said it was all a dream and started over one morning and he wasn't dead and you know, blah, 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 blah. I think that there are a bunch of people who think that they can go back to Reagan, Bush stuff fairly easily. 
they're more serious people who say that's not possible so long as the base won't let them. And so that's the main question there is, and I've had these conversations with pretty serious Republican people. The, the, the question there is how long does Trump have a half-life? How long does he hold on to that chunk of the, the right-wing uh, primary electorate? And no one really knows the answer to that. Sometimes losing really does hurt you. Um, but he's defied a lot of rules of politics. So people are, are very concerned about, about all that. We are, I should say that at the dispatch, we are going to do a post-election big conference basically on this question with pro-Trump, anti-Trump, you know, everybody, you know, GOP types all over the place. As for me personally, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I really don't know. I think that that base populist stuff is, is out of the bottle and um, very hard to put back in. Um, there are enough people now who are on the record as saying that this is the idea whose time has come. It's very difficult to pull those statements back. and. Um, and there are a number of institutions that have figured out how to monetize this stuff. And, um, so, uh, I think for sort of more classical liberal Burkean conservative types like me, uh, this is going to be a central fight for the, you know, until I die, you know, my, that's the rest of my career is, is dealing with this stuff to one extent or another. So that's, that's where I sort of see it. Yeah, I, I mean, what, part of what I'm wondering is, did did the sane part of the Republican Party lose power to Trump in 2016, or did they lose it to the Trump base? And those that's a big question, because Trump might disappear. Hell, Trump might get indicted, might get convicted. Who knows what happens to Trump in the future? Um, but that base, I kind of wonder how you wrestle the party back from that. I mean... I keep the, so the here's the scene that I keep thinking of. It's uh, December seventh, twenty fifteen, uh, in South Carolina, and Trump is announcing <laughs> he's announcing his Muslim ban, or what, what mm -hmm. we on the left call the Muslim ban. For purposes of this conversation, I'm going to call me the left, even though that's not exactly what I am. I know. Um, like it's like me calling myself the right. We each have <laughs> people who will contend with that. <laughs> yep. So. So Trump is in this room in South Carolina, and he's a, he's going to announce this travel ban on uh, on uh, not on Muslim countries at that point on Muslims per se coming into the United States. And when a he total announces and complete ban, yes, a that total and complete yeah. shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Clearly, he had written the sentence himself. Uh, and but what you know, so the the idea is there, and he's planning to announce it. But as he, if you watch the announcement. He is uh, announcing it to his audience, and as he is speaking the words, he is watching them. And he does. The, he, Trump has this way at his rallies of looking at the audience for signals of approval, acceptance, encouragement. Um, right. And what what's if you go back and watch the video, what really strikes me is that he's looking to see what this audience wants and will approve, and they love it. They absolutely love it. It's a huge success. And if the base, if the people in that room had had not given him enthusiastic support, he would not have done it. If the Republican Party as a whole had not accepted a lot of his craziness, he would not have succeeded and might have backed off, in fact, from it. So what my my concern, I mean, I think Trump is a, just a horrible person and an extreme danger to the world, but 
even with Trump gone, I am very much worried about the Trump base. And I fear that people in the Republican Party who think that getting rid of Trump means they will regain control of the party are deluded. And that this base is their political base. It controls primaries. It is also the financial base. It is the audience for Fox News. The whole media verse on the right depends on it. And that these people just will control what is now the conservative party or what used to be the conservative party in this country for a long time. Um, well, uh, you are completely forgiven for not knowing, but uh, I, this is one of the reasons why I'm obsessed with uh, reforming the parties. Um, I think primaries are bad. They're bad at, for both parties. They're bad for the country. Um, I think that they have done a real disservice to the country and to the civic order. Um, they've weakened the parties. I want stronger parties. And so, by all means, you know, we've had primaries for 100 years. But they didn't determine who got the nomination until basically the early 70s. And um, so I want more superdelegates. I want more institutions taking control of these things thinking long-term about what's good for the party, what's good for the country, yada, 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 rather than doing the sort of, uh, you know, waving the bloody toga at, at the mob to get them all riled up for one specific candidate or one specific issue. Um, what you propose is entirely possible. Um, I suspect, though, that I'm a big believer in, you know, we agreed when we launched this podcast there would be no Hegel. But um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I believe there are certain dialectics that go on. And so if you get enough of a reaction of an action one way, you get a counterbanding reaction to it. And the shuffling of the coalitions that make up the parties are such that um, I just don't think you can make a long term prediction about this stuff. I mean, if you took if you read the tea leaves of every single election, presidential election going back. 20, 30 years and made the best, most informed prediction possible based on the trends that led to that election, you would have been wrong every single time. And, um, and that's sort of where that, that, that's, that's the only reason why the living don't envy the dead in my scenario about the future. Um, but I could be wrong. Um, all right. So, uh, let's change gears for a second. Um, uh, You've covered a lot. You've written a lot about Supreme Court nomination fights. I've written a lot, paid attention a lot, Supreme Court nomination fights. Driving down here this morning uh, to do this podcast, I decided that they're all just really, really stupid um, and exhausting. And um, uh, and they're, they're at this point, they're just sort of designed to be this way. Um, where do you come down on the Coney Barrett thing? I have, I have unpopularly peculiar positions on all of it. Um, and do you feel, because we've now just done 25 minutes of Trump bashing, so I have to turn the tables on you and attack you as a liberal and all that. Uh, do you feel any responsibility that your side is the one that really started it with all these, with this, this confirmation war stupidity? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's all our fault. Um, you know, I don't, so I think it's probably in the nature of everybody not to pay attention to the part of the war that your side fought uh, in, in, a, in an uh, 
unethical <laughs> or unwise way. So I, sure. I really, if you take me back to 2013, was it 2013? I can't remember that. I know I take it back to Abe thing. Fortas and then Bob Bork. <laughs> so I mean, I mean, again, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a. As right. Jonathan Adler says, it's a thirty-five year cycle of, of escalation. And so whoever acted last acted worse because that's how escalation works. Right. Um, but anyway, go on. I'm sorry. So well, l- let me just talk about the general phenomenon here. So I, 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 if you, if you take me back to when the Democrats nuked the 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 filibuster, uh, I would be, you know, I. It, I just wasn't paying attention at that time. Um, but it's hilarious to me to see, because so I'm seeing what the right is doing, right? And I'm seeing uh, a complete amnesia or a willful attempt to erase the history of 2016 as we're going into this 2020 confirmation. So my, my general view of the Amy Coney Barrett nomination is, first of all, in the big picture, we have to stop doing judicial confirmations this way. We need to change the way we do the Supreme Court. Something, you know, I've, the one pl- plan I've heard about is this sort of five-five-five plan. You get five appointed by one party, five by the other. Then they have to, those five on each side, choose the five in the middle. I don't know. I mean, we, we need to get, I think Supreme Court justices are way more competent than they used to be. They're way, mm-hmm. they're better educated. Um, they, I mean, they have to be. There's been this accumulation of cases and the law is increasingly sophisticated and complex. Um, but the partisanship has gotten completely out of control. So the fact that we're now in this fight over which party, you know, it, it's insane what's going on right now. The Republicans trying to ram through a third nominee in this in a situation where, number one, they're completely violating every principle they articulated four years ago about confirmations during the election. Number two, they have no mandate to do this. They just happen to hold power as a residue of previous mandates, some of which are six years old, right? This is a six-year-old Senate. Um, they're, they're, and they're just grabbing the seat because they can. So when I hear my friends on the left talk about court packing and this outrage on the right, you can't pack the court, that would be violating precedent, that would be... I honestly have lost my sympathy for the right on this. I, I think court packing is nuts, but I think the norms are being trashed right now in this confirmation. So I think we need to see, I, my model for this is I'd like to see something like a arms reduction talks where you have your nukes and we have our nukes and now let's sit down and talk about how we can reduce the nukes on both sides. Um, I don't know whether that's easier or harder after Amy Coney Barrett goes through, which I assume she will, but we need to sort of back off and change it so it's not this ridiculous fight every time a, a nomination comes up. Okay, so I agree with a lot of that. Um, I, um, but actually, and when I when I first said, "Do you feel any guilt about starting all of this?" Um, I actually wasn't talking about the. I should have clarified the confirmation contest per se, though I do think you guys started it on that front too. Um, but forget Democrats versus Republicans, right? The, 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 the standard argument among, I would argue, smart, informed conservatives about this stuff is um, that the reason why the confirmation battles have become so ugly is that the court matters more than it ever did. And more importantly, it matters more than it should. And so when the Supreme Court um, 
assumes or is given, which I think is in some ways the more egregious thing, vast powers that was not intended to have and makes it more powerful than any senator or even group of senators and more more significant on certain issues than the president of the United States, who should be shocked that we're treating it like it's a political campaign every time there's an opening? And, um, and you know, I think even Ruth Bader Ginsburg made you know, an allusion to this argument with her criticism of how Roe was handled, that by the court short-circuiting a democratic process, it it ignited the pro-life movement in a lot of ways, which is, I think, a good example of the larger trend, which goes back, I would argue, at least 100 years. Um, um, and so the real, I mean, again, forget Democrats versus Republicans, because there were a lot of progressive Republicans. And now it's just, I think, an institutionalized and American problem. We've invested in the court so much power, and then we're really upset with vested interests for recognizing that fact and marshalling and mobilizing to win that political fight when we politicize it. And I don't think figuring out a different confirmation process fixes that problem. So long as the stakes are so high, interested parties are going to be going nuts about the process of confirmation. What do you think about all that? Yeah, no, I am sympathetic to that. So I have a very weird sort of view in the weird, my idiosyncratic middle, okay, which is I agree with you. Um, I, I am sympathetic to judicial restraint in general. I think the court should intervene less. Ironically, in the case of the Affordable Care Act, there's an attempt to make it intervene more, right? I, I'm generally happy with the court being extremely reluctant to intervene in, in laws, uh, to, to strike things, to strike down laws. Um, and certainly not with sort of the, you know, uh, increasing expansion of, um, you know, unenumerated rights. And uh, no, I don't, I, I am sympathetic to the conservative view about judges to the extent that it's about restraint. I think judicial activism can happen on both sides. And it's really easy to tell yourself you're, you're being the, you're advocating restraint and then crossing over and uh, promoting your own kind of activism. So having said that, um, I, f- I have to say that being the mushy milk toast person that I am on that issue, I am sympathetic to the left about the process that's being undertaken right now. I think that the Republican reversal from 2016 to 2020, what was said about Merrick Garland, the whole rationale of democracy, let the people choose the president, let the people choose who will, who will choose the next justice, and then just flipping on that with the thinnest of rationalizations is grotesque. It is indefensible. And so we... I guess the message that I want to communicate to any (laughs) thoughtful conservative listener is what is what the Republicans are doing now is not acceptable. It is a power grab. So when you tell me that the court packing is a power grab on the other side, my honest reaction is you guys are doing that right now. Now, you're not changing the number of justices unless we want to go back and count what was done to Merrick Garland as reducing the court from nine to eight for a year, which I think is a decent argument. Um, and I agree that it's going to, that's an endless war if we start increasing the number of justices, but I want you to know that to a moderate person, what is happening right now is just indefensible and it it is a power grab. There is not really another principle behind it. And so I feel like you're crossing over and we're now in a world of power grabs. So I would encourage you to step back and consider what you can bargain for that. Here's my fantasy, Jonah. 
My fantasy is that a conservative justice on the Supreme Court, I don't care who it is, resigns under Biden and says, I am going to, I am going to rectify what just happened. Now, will that happen? Almost certainly not. But that person could make the difference, could basically cancel out this. And then we could have a serious discussion about how the court works. Okay. So, uh, your fantasy, you should just know that, that one of the key symptoms of acute dehydration are delusions and, uh, and, and paroxysms of, 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 of fantastical thought. And that's why I want to talk to you about liquid IV. You know, cooler weather, along with confirmation battles and national elections, make it difficult to miss signs of dehydration like overheating or perspiration, or thinking that uh, conservative Supreme Court justices will, in a bid of fairness, agree to uh, give Merrick Garland their seat on the Supreme Court. And that means it's even more important to keep your body properly hydrated. Uh, One serving of liquid IV gives you the same hydration as drinking two to three bottles of water alone. There are three delicious new flavors, sweet and juicy guava, crisp watermelon, and comforting apple pie. Each contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana. Healthier than sugary sports drinks, no artificial flavors or preservatives, and less sugar than an apple. Made with clean ingredients, no GMO, vegan, and free of gluten, dairy, and soy. What makes liquid IV so effective? It's the optimal ratio of glucose, sodium, and potassium that delivers water and nutrients straight into the bloodstream. It's the perfect balance to help you hydrate more quickly and effectively than water alone. So, liquid IV is available nationwide at Walmart in the beverage section, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code DINGO at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you use promo code DINGO at liquidiv.com. Get better hydration today at liquidiv.com. Promo code DINGO. We thank Liquid IV for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Right, so, so look, well, I mean, I'm, I'm in a quirky place on this because I took the position that this was a terrible situation for a lot of the reasons that you're saying, and that what the GOP should have done is come out with some, I was, I was with the Elias Oman and Adam White crowd, and actually I'm borrowing Adam White's office at AI to record this, um, that said that this is just, I mean, trying to do a confirmation hearing in the last three, four weeks of a presidential election where the president of the United States is going around literally implying that we need to get this person on the bench so that they can rule in my favor in a when the ballot stuff goes to the courts is just it's no way to run a railroad and i wanted some grand bargain to get us out of all of it and all the rest um so my cards are on the table and all that that said um i think that you're doing a little bit of an apples and oranges thing when you compare the power grab scenario of court packing to the power grab scenario of a president within his four-year term nominating somebody, which Barack Obama got to do, and then the Senate acting on it if they choose to, which they are allowed to do by the Constitution. I agree with you. Like, Lindsey Graham looks ridiculous in his hypocrisy. 
stipulated. I think Mitch McConnell slightly less so if you actually listen to a lot of his stuff in context, but he doesn't look great either. And a lot of the other Republicans look terrible. But this is sort of what I'm getting at when I say the whole process is so stupid, because the hypocrisy that you're pointing to uh, among Republicans, like when Democrats say, oh, this is outrageous, look at how hypocritical Republicans are. Those Democrats are being hypocritical because in 2016, they said the president should get their appointee no matter what. This is outrageous. Of course, the Senate should take this up, blah, 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 blah. Now they're saying they shouldn't, not because of any standard found in the Constitution, not from any standard of their own consistency, because they've just abandoned it, but because they want to live by the standards put forward by Republicans, which is a natural human impulse, but does not necessarily have a lot of binding power. What do you say about that? Yeah, no, I generally when the parties switch places, of course, the hypocrisy will be on both sides. It so happens that in this case, the Republicans are winning with their hypocrisy. And that yeah, which it always annoys people. You know, <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> um, but I will point out a little bit of difference, which is that. I mean, it's the two cases are different because the the Senate Obama didn't have the Senate, but he did put forward a nominee in Merrick Garland who was not ideological, who was not. And and I have to be fair, like, I don't hate Amy Coney Barrett. I think she'll be a fine. She's a a, a fine part of a well-balanced court. How how what where she should be in that in that constellation of nine is another question. Uh, it's not on her that she happens to be, you know, appointed by a guy who's the, declaring without her consent that he wants her to like rule his way on an election uh, right. on, on counting ballots. Um, but it, Merrick Garland was a, was a compromise nominee. And so I agree with your uh, idea. Like, I, I think it would have been better to, um, to acknowledge, which is not Trump's style, uh, that, you know, it's, this is the third, he's, he's already gotten two picks this is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. Let's let's just do the the generous thing and suggest somebody who is somewhat in the middle, where we can get some Democratic votes, and that's just not the course they chose. And I think it's symptomatic of a a mindset during the Trump administration of grab what you can while you can, uh, grab the tax cut, grab the court the court seats, and and we'll worry about the rest later. I, I just worry that it has long-term ramifications. But I want to stipulate as to your point about differences, because we and I both get this nonsense all the time about both sides-ism, you know, like, yes, one side does bad things, the other side does bad things, not all bad things are similar. It's okay to point out the bad things on one side and the other. Okay, I have to say, uh, that was the most brilliant, scintillating, artfully expressed point I've never heard. Uh, for listeners who don't know, uh, my, my Wi-Fi went completely out right after uh, Will said something along the lines, Donald Trump needs to acknowledge. And we've been debating how to reconstruct what he said. And we decided, ah, screw it. So if, if he said, like, Jonah Goldberg sniffs elderberries or something like that, I reserve the right later to respond. But otherwise, I'm just going to say, uh, I'm sure you made a great, great argument there. Um, and, uh, so, and that, and so for people who don't understand what's going on, we basically, uh, killed a vast amount of time trying to figure out what the technological problem was, but we were going to get back, th back into things now. Um, so. Leslie, I typed your symptoms into the thing up here and it says you could have network connectivity problems. 
apparently we saved my little apology thing about missing stuff because of Wi-Fi problems. And then it happened again. Literally, both Will and I are now old men. And <laughs> we've lived full lives. And, um, and we are now sitting on a porch in an old age home continuing this conversation. And I, I really apologize to Will for you know, having to miss like his kids getting married and, and graduating from school, all these things, just so he could wait around to fix this. I wasn't going to curse. I'm not going to curse. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, um, so I, 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 I appreciate your well-wishing and, and your sympathies for me and the plight of a, um, a non-Trumper in an age of Trump. Because I'm more curious, though, because I know what my views are. And, and, and I live in an age where everyone else who is interested can find out what my views are. Um, what is it like for you to still be sort of, you know, two thumbs up, you know, two and a half cheers for the enlightenment, uh, sort of progressive, but on the sort of procedural classical liberal side of everything, you know, what, what's it like to be accused of being an apologist for neoliberalism and, and all of that? Um, um, tell me, just tell me about the plight of a once considered kind of lefty, but now kind of moderate liberal journalist. What, what's going on in your side of the things? Well, I, 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 like everybody else, I think I've been standing in the same place and everyone else has moved. So I, I can't, I'm not really a, a, an objective judge of that, but that, that is what I think. And I feel like what's happened is media has polarized. Uh, consumption of media is polarized and media itself. I work in media and I work at a magazine that used to like be a liberal magazine housed at AEI. And um, now it's just sort of, it's just sort of an inertia thing, sort of people on, it's some of it's generational, millennials are, you know, more woke. Um, but um, a lot of it is just people hire other people who are like them. So when, when that happens racially, when it's white people hiring other white people, um, today's progressives are very attuned to that. And they talk about diversity and they should. Diversity is good. Diversity is healthy. You need to you need to interact with people who are different from you. You learn a lot from them. You, they learn from you. Um, it's great. But that's also true politically. And political diversity is something that progressives are not good at recognizing, or they come up with clever ways of dismissing it as some kind of, you know, capitulation to capitalism or power or whatever it is. Um, but in fact, if you don't have people who are sort of in the center or conservative leaning around you, if you just interact with other like-minded progressives, uh, you get soft, you get weak. So, um, uh, I feel like there are not, uh, as many, you know, moderates, um, or people at Slate who are sympathetic to or understanding of the way conservatives think as there should be. And I think that's true. It's not a Slate thing. It's true of, of, all media uh, that used to be somewhere in the center. And I think it's mostly true of the right. I would say that the bulwark and the dispatch and uh, perhaps some other places are attempts to, to rectify that. And I think, I think those are very healthy. And I think it would be actually healthy if there were more interaction between um, the moderates of the left and the right. So that, that's the way I feel right now. I mean, what do you think? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, again, what your theory of the cases, right? For a long time, and I, I'm not ascribing this to you, but I can imagine there was a time when you probably might have agreed with the general liberal sort of poo-pooing um, and tut-tutting and, and mockery of conservative concerns that universities were, were ideological factories churning out, you know, 
left-wing students. And um, let's stipulate that there are dumb versions of virtually every smart argument that comes out of the left and the right, so we don't have to deal with the dumb versions. Um, but I think there was some legitimate legitimacy to that concern, whether it was overstated, you know, and all the rest. And now you're telling me that, you know, I mean, it seems to me, and I talk to other people in media as well, that at places like Slate and places like Atlantic, they get pulled to the left because the kids in the pipeline out of elite schools are, you know, and it may be unfair to say more left wing. It's just mm -hmm. that they are calibrated to be concerned about different things that make them to old timers like us seem more left wing. But mm -hmm. what is your theory of the case of why the, the pipeline is churning out fewer sort of moderates or old school Democrats and instead is feeding you, um, you know, wokesters? I, I would like to look at some survey data on the pipeline because I, I think what's actually happening is that we're it's the selection effect. So I now I, let me go back to the, my point about um, ethnic and racial and gender diversity, which I think is a really good model for this. It is well understood in progressive circles that if you if your magazine is all white people, you are sending a message to non-white people that they don't belong. Right. You may not intend that. You may think I live in a race neutral environment, but in fact, you are sending a message. And I think this, that there that's correct. And and I, I think the same is true of politics. So I think that a, a person who is sort of middle of the road, a young person who is middle of the road, who is looking at a progressive magazine today is getting a signal that they don't belong there. The people who are getting the signal they do belong are the most woke. And I'm using woke here as a pejorative. I mean, truly, truly open-minded people, uh, I think, are great. I think open-mindedness is wonderful. I'm using woke to mean a kind of fake open-mindedness um, where you actually subscribe to a, a, a dogma. And so my concern is that we are determining our own pipeline, that the people who are coming to us are already on the woke side. And then you have the additional phenomenon of the people who do the hiring um, being fairly woke themselves and just not having enough other voices in the room who say, uh, you know, do we really need another person who thinks this way? What would be a good way for us to integrate with a broader section of America? I mean, it's, it's a strange, I mean, I, I think you're right about the dispatch. Um, I think the bulwark, which is a lot of great people and doing a lot of great things, but, is in the midst of trying to figure out what its post-Trump business model is, which is a little different than us because we've always intended to be a post-Trump business. Um, but uh, the it is a strange <clears throat> it is a strange thing. I mean, it seems to me if your theory is correct that it's 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 just simply um, a selection bias problem. That would suggest that there is still a considerable market that is now underserved on the center left that cannot find the equivalent of say the dispatch, um, out there. And the slate used to be, I mean, I, I always thought the contrarian thing, which started in the new Republic went too far sometimes with slate, but, um, until it became its own thing. Um, but slate used to be that, you know, I mean, Mickey Kouse, Michael Kinsley, um, you know, were, even Hitchens in his own weird 
hard to define way, you know, you on, you know, science issues. Um, it was a more moderate place. And I don't want to pick on Slate. It's just like, I know it a little bit from my years there and I know you guys and all that. But I think that's true. I mean, the New York, take the New York Times. I mean, the New York Times is, is going through a thing where they are sort of, you know, uh, galvanizing around a cultural, a set of cultural assumptions that make it less appealing to people who don't already agree with all of those cultural assumptions, I think is the fairest way to put it. Um, I mean, is there something larger going on on the left that, that, that concerns you or no? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things going on. I, I mean, so part of it is that we live in an era of conformity and some of the conformity is technological. I think some of it is that the inner, the speed of interaction, the internet has made it possible for minds to interact more quickly. I think in terms of its potential, that is great. In terms of its immediate effect, what's happened is um, you get feedback right away that you are out of line with people who agree with who would might otherwise agree with you. You get shamed. You feel, even if you're not forced out of it, you just feel, you you start to feel social pressure to conform. I definitely feel more of that. I, I miss the era of blogging when you just took chances. You would say things and you would be wrong. And then you mm-hmm. would modify as you went along. But now the punishment, the feeling of punishment for being wrong or saying something offensive on the first shot is just too great. People don't take those risks anymore. Um, so that's part of it. Um, there, you know, I think that one of the, I think the truest text ever written is animal farm. So part of what happens is you, in the case of say the New York times, let's take, um, racial awakening, right? Um, what these movements, these movements start out as eye opening, right? Uh, and the racial awakening movements have been eye-opening the whole time. Um, white people not realizing that they're dominating things, not realizing they're not seeing things from a non-white point of view, ignoring the problems of non-white people, ignoring discrimination, ignoring structural um, uh, racial barriers. And so that the movement opens your eyes. And then v- if you're not careful, it can close your eyes. And that's what happens on college campuses. Pretty soon that's the only lens through which you see everything, right? And so the like critical race theory, the critical part is great. And that's the way academics fancy themselves, right? I've opened the, the eyes of my students to this phenomenon of racism that they didn't see before. But quickly the lens can ossify, right? It can, it can become the only way you see things. And now you're shutting out every other way of looking at things. So what's happening at the New York Times, I think, is that there's... Um, in the process of the awakening, there's a kind of overreaching, and now there's fear of contradicting, uh, of appearing to be racist in any way, or of, like the 1619 Project, right? Like every other opening, I like the 1619 Project. Did it overstate its case? Absolutely. That's the nature of such things. You should, it should be fine to say they overstated it. This part's not true without having to throw the whole thing out. And you shouldn't be hated for saying that. Um, but if you are hated, you just got to stand up for it. So that's my spiel. I'm, I've talked too long. What do you think? No, no, no. I mean, you're, you're here. People get to hear me. Um, um, yeah, look, I mean, this is one of my, one of my great obsessions is the wrongness of monocausal explanations for anything. Um, you know, there is this profound tendency, this sort of faddishness to, reduce all issues. I mean, there's always been an issue on the left where the great fights between 
does class explain everything or race explain everything? And the problem is, is of course, is that both explain a lot, but neither of them explain everything. Um, and, and, and there are some things they don't explain at all. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and the right has its versions of this, but, um, I think in part because the right is less suffused with academic incentive structures and relationships to sort of theolo- theoretical production industries. Um, it's less prone to that. Uh, but there's certainly people, you know, who, who do that kind of stuff. Um, but like, you know, no one, no one goes on to a car dealership and says, I'm here to buy a red car today, right? Reducing everything down to a single issue is, is kind of nuts. The thing I find fascinating about watching it from outside the fishbowl a little bit, I'm out of everybody's fishbowl these days. I mean, they're like, I'm, I, I have the smallest fishbowl in the world. Um, but the, how to put this? I think it was actually originally something I read in Slate 20, 20 years ago in one of the dialogues um, from one of the legal guys who made this point that in every society, sometimes in every society, there are times when I'll just put it in my own words, when um, the thing that preoccupies or obsesses the society the most is actually the thing they need to worry about the least. And so there are times, you know, like, there are the free speech freak out people, not maybe not right now, but 10 years ago, you know, it was, free speech was like really, really free in America. And yet it was this thing that really obsessed a lot of people. Um, and the, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about racism. We absolutely should. And, you know, everything in proportion, but we should. Um, but the places that most freak out and most on, the, on a sort of animal farm level of intensity about racism and a lot of ways have the least reason to freak out about it. The problem is, is that because they're so freaked out about it, it creates an incentive structure for um, people to use those issues to win fights that they otherwise couldn't win on any other merits. And that's the thing that I sort of find sort of amazing from looking from the outside is like whoever gets the most credibly claimed the other one is racially insensitive wins. And that's a really dumb way to settle arguments about math, you know? Um, but that's the way it looks like from where I'm sitting. Yeah. Uh, well, so of course the, the, the reverse, uh, uh, case is the Supreme court and Catholics, right? I mean, mm-hmm. how many Catholics do we have on the Supreme court at this point? And yet the, the, what the, the right is essentially playing on Catholicism, the left's game, they're not playing the race card. They're playing the Catholic card. It's like, yeah. come on, we don't have a problem with enough Catholics on the Supreme court. Nothing against Catholics. Some of my favorite, you know, sisters-in-law are Catholic, but that's, uh, it's a, it's a reflex and the right watches the left play that game and says, you know, that really works. That's hurting us. How can we use that weapon? So it's a, it's a kind of a weakness of human nature. You say you're against thinking this way. You say you're against this kind of cynical political move, and then you just learn it and play it. Yeah, no, I I think that's right. And, and, and I think that, you know, um, um, you know, one of the things that people don't appreciate is, is that, that, that is, you know, John, is it John Tooby, the evolutionary psychologist, he has this great essay, which I plug every year or so, um, on the coalition instinct. And, you know, part of what I like about this little riff that he's got is that, um, all significant coalitions in politics or in life 
contain all sorts of hypocrisies and contradictions and inconsistencies. It is just the nature of large coalitions. But we are wired to go blind to those inconsistencies within our own coalition and be hyper attentive to them in the other coalition. And, um, and so you get like, as you're pointing out with the Catholic thing, um, look, I think what Diane Feinstein said about the dogma lives loudly in you was very bad. Yes. And, um, and I think some of that stuff, but most of the stuff that they said about her was in 2017 because they can't find stuff that they're saying about her now because they learned that that was a bad thing to say. Um, but the, the, you know, I saw an ad this morning for Amy Comey Barrett, uh, from the, you know, this, it's a great story about the blind girl, the blind student at, at Notre Dame who went to her and said, I can't get these materials because, um, you know, that, that allow me to do my homework because I'm, you know, visually impaired and the library won't provide them, blah, blah, blah. And, and Barrett said, look, that's my problem now, not your problem. I'll take care of it. Great story. And then the blind girl goes on to say, um, or she say blind woman. She sounds like a very impressive person. Um, it's that kind of empathy that we need on the Supreme Court. And I can't tell you how many times I have written or blogged about how the left's, and particularly Barack Obama's insistence that the key ingredient of a Supreme Court justice should be empathy and how that's wrong. Um, <laughs> and that's, 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 it is, it is it is the whole point of wearing black rose and impartial justice and lady justices blindfold is this idea that and if you actually read the oath of office of a supreme court justice you're not supposed to i mean it's clear you're not supposed to sort of show favoritism simply because you feel for some person over another it's strictly about the law and there was a time when i got nothing but applause from conservatives for making that argument I am sure that if I did a little po blog post today, if I were still at National Review in the corner where I say, this is a garbage argument, um, it's very nice that, she, that, that you know, Amy Coney Barrett is a, is a nice person, and I'm glad that she did this nice thing, but this has absolutely zero to do with why we want her on the Supreme Court, I would get enormous pushback because our coalition has decided that any argument that advances our cause is good, and any interruption of that argument or, or pushback on that argument is bad. And, I, and so I'm just sort of in this mode where I see all that stuff. It's one of my big concerns about being able to go back into the conservative fold down the road is that once you've been outside the fishbowl, it's not that you won't be welcomed back in. It's that you just see things differently than you used to see. Yeah. Um, uh, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I don't, I, 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 I rambled there. Um, no, I, I mean, that's great. You've, you know, it's a, uh, now I forget which color pill we're talking about. The red pill is the one that's, uh, yeah, <laughs> you've, you've, you've had, you've, 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 you've taken the pill now. So that's, that's, and I, you know, I feel, I feel like that's a good guide to life though. Don't I mean, don't worry about whether you can go back into a camp. What you, what happens is you go back into the, and I'll just speak for my position on the left. It's that uh, I now speak to people on the left from a the standpoint, where do they come from? How can I connect with them? How can I persuade them? But it's very much a them. It's not a mm -hmm. me, right? And my my what are what are my actual instincts? Um, they're somewhat progressive, somewhat conservative, but mostly just liberal, capital L liberal. Um, and uh, I I can't I can't you know be part of a camp at this point, and mm -hmm. that's okay. Like I I feel like my job this is just personal. Um, as long as I am able to do this job every day, I want to ask, what am I not seeing? 
right? And what, what, I'm, what I'm not seeing is most likely going to be the prejudices of the people with whom I associate. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that I want to, to expose myself to. And I'm not so much interested in the ones I already see. I want to see what's the next thing I don't see. And so you're just learning, right? And then you're trying to share that with other people. And part of this process is that you will make mistakes because the you of a week from now or a year from now will look back and say, you know, I wasn't like the whole Barrett confirmation fight. I was just playing. I wasn't seeing how the other side understood this. I didn't understand mm-hmm. the history of what Harry Reid did to the filibuster. Um, and if I had understood it, you know, I would have at least understood what the other side was thinking. So... Yeah. I mean, I don't, so yeah, it's a practical problem of how you go back to having a camp, but it's not a moral problem. No, You're no, on I, agree the right track. I agree with that. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, uh, but let me, let me, so let me ask you about, since I brought up empathy and that weird little diatribe, um, and I think empathy is this really interesting concept, um, that doesn't get fully understood. Um, Oh gosh, I'm I'm spacing on his name. Um, Paul, the guy who wrote Just Babies and the book about empathy. Bloom at Yale. Bloom, sorry, Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom, yeah. Um, he wrote that this great book about empathy, about how em- em- empathy can actually kind of steer us wrong. Um, and so, like, look, first of all, I have I have I have some empathy for you. I've known you for 25 years. Um, I now have hair thick like Stalin and you, uh, have memories of your hair, um, <laughs> which is one of the reasons why I want to talk to you about keeps. So, um, I don't know if people know, but like, uh, last weekend or maybe it was the weekend before I can't keep time as a flat circle, but, uh, I recently was at, uh, a wedding in Charlottesville for my nephew. Uh, one of my nephews, I probably shouldn't use his name, although of course they all know who he is because he's the only one of my nephews to get married in Charlottesville last weekend. Anyway, it was a lovely wedding, maybe the prettiest setting of any wedding I've ever been to at this sort of winery kind of place in the hills around Charlottesville. Truly lovely, lovely bride. Everyone looked great. A lot of fun. And um, but on my wife's side of the family, the men struggle mightily with with uh, the problem, the challenge of hair loss. And I was very tempted right after the officiant said you may kiss the bride or words to that effect um i came very close to a loud stage whisper sort of slash yelling now you can lose your hair (laughs) because uh this is you know this is one of these things that for particularly youngish men um uh, it is a race to find a bride um before you start really badly losing your hair and then once you're married it's kind of her problem um, I joke, but that's, that was always sort of my attitude because I thought for a long time I was losing my hair. I was very interested in researching products, you know, uh, me and a buddy from high school, we, we, we agonized about it. And so I didn't understand that fear. Fortunately, um, I missed that gene. My dad started going bald when he was 19. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, and for people who say, oh, it only travels on your mom's side. That's not really true. The most prevalent gene for baldness as I understand it from my 20 year old research travels on your mom's side, but you can get it. Um, there, there's more than one contributing genetic factor for, for baldness. There's also stress. Thankfully now there's keeps the simple and easy way to keep your hair. Did you know that two out of three guys experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair 
left to lose. You can get treated from home. You, you used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor's visits. Keeps also offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, but probably never for this price. Prevention is key. Keeps treatments typically take between four to six months to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors, and more than 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just $10 a month, plus for a limited time, limited time, you can get your first month free. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash dingo. That's keeps.com slash dingo to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash dingo. We thank Keeps for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Back to empathy. Uh, um, so, but, but back back to empathy. I think that one of the thing, one of the standard criticisms, maybe not of you because you know you're of your unfeeling neoliberal Android ways, but um, in general, one of the great criticisms of of liberalism per se or, or progressivism is that it it leads with empathy and that it cares a lot about misfortune of others, the underdog, the, the oppressed, all perfectly legitimate things to care about. The problem is, in a sort of Hayekian sense, is that it then wants to change, it wants to design the system in ways that um, are not optimal for everybody, but instead tailored to individual groups or, or just, just plain individuals. Um, Do you, where, where do you come down on that kind of approach? Do you think that uh, a fair system is a system that has clear, fair rules for everybody and everybody can be an entrant to the system, but the results will be, will be um, disproportionate or not necessarily, you know, egalitarian across all sorts of demographics? Or do you think the system it should be working harder to have equality of results, not just equality of opportunity. Okay. So my answer is just visceral. I mean, I believe that personality drives a lot of this stuff. And although you should consult morality, you, 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 you just have a nature, right? And my nature is I'm an equal opportunity person, not an equal outcome person. Um, so I can be persuaded that at a certain point inequalities of outcome are start, start to affect inequalities of start to affect equality of opportunity. And to that extent, I'm willing to limit them. But no, I am much more of a moderate about about that stuff. And I'm an, I'm an, I'm an individualist, not a collectivist. So um, that that draw, and that just I just want to confess that th these are these are personal inclinations, right? Mm -hmm. it's, and so I can have an argument with somebody about it, but I'm just going to that's the direction in which I'm going to lean. And the the larger point though that I'd want to make about this is about as to your point about progressives being more concerned with empathy than with rules that actually work. 
uh, I think that's partly in the nature of progressives and conservatives. Like, so I've come around to a more ecological view of the left and the right, which is progressives are really good about seeing problems and raising problems and demanding that something be done about them and then trying to do things. They're not good at drawing lines. They're not good at, you know, that's what conservatives do. Conservatives say, stop, no. Uh, conservatives tend to be just as bad uh, on the, in the other direction. The conservative will will not acknowledge a problem, not see a problem. But um, the conservatives are, you know, it's like an accelerator and brake kind of thing. And sometimes mm-hmm. you need a break. So uh, yes, uh, you can count on progressives to constantly be saying the Supreme Court should be um, upholding this right and that right and acknowledging this and that and other injustice. And they're the cons- you will every once in a while need a couple of conservative justices on the court to say, that's nice, that may be important, but that's not the job of this court. That should be left to the legislature. Um, so is it possible that in 10 years, we'll be looking back on your standing still as the tectonic forces of progressivism keep drifting lefter and lefter from you, that people start calling you a neocon? <laughs> so I, I, we don't really know, you know, neither of us, we obviously we we're aware that we're not, we don't can't predict the next year, much less the next five or 10 years. But I do think there are forces that will gradually equalize, uh, that will, that will pull people. I mean, failure will pull people back. If you, if you try to run, um, a city, uh, the way, you know, Ted Wheeler does in Portland, uh, you, you will have problems. Uh, you will, you, if you, if you run a movement where you don't tell people to control their behavior and instead of they go from protesting to, um, you know, looting or arson, you know, that will generate a backlash. So I count on democracy to some extent to be a, a, a limit on that kind of thing. And conversely, um, if you, you can argue that a lot of the reason for the rise of the left today is that, um, conservatives succeeded too much in um, removing government from the economy. I mean, you'll point out that there's a lot of regulation, but inequality, economic inequality has reached a point where the left now has purchased. They have, they ha- they have a basis uh, to demand the, that the public do something and the public is listening to them. They have more political power as a result of overreach. So I guess that's what I think. Over time, things get pulled back to the middle. I, I'm. I, I hope so. And again, I've I've used my quota on Hegel and dialectic, so we, I I won't belabor how I, I I agree with that to a certain extent. You're, you're killing me with the Hegel stuff because I actually <laughs> um, I literally studied Hegel and Marx in college, a lot of it, and I never get to talk about it. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> but if you ever want to talk about Hegel, like like you know, uh, like cigars, we're going to go off and have a Hegel yeah, session. We'll do it. Yeah. Um. Uh, but, um, do you, I mean, do you, as a matter of analysis, I think you make a perfectly fine point. Um, and I probably agree with all of it. Um, as a matter of first order, I know I, I like your technique of retreating into just personality preferences rather than like invoking any philosophical standard whatsoever. It's, it's, it, it, Walter Lippmann would be very proud of you. Um, I want, but I do want to know, uh, what is, if, what is your fundamental problem with income inequality? Let's stipulate that it's not as bad as Elizabeth Warren says it is, but it's, it's, it's much worse than what Larry Kudlow says it is. And let's say it's a real thing and there is income inequality. And 
that it's gotten worse. Um, but what is what is your fundamental problem with it? Like, why does it offend liberal sensibilities? So, okay, I don't have a problem with uh, economic inequality per se. That is to say. I, I think there needs to be a floor. There needs to be an acceptable standard of living and that we should be trying to raise up the standards of people. We should try to get everybody out of poverty to the extent that we can. Uh, beyond that, I'm, I'm generally in favor of opportunity with the caveat that at, there are, can be ways in which inequality can, um, you know, like right now, for example, um, you're the, where the people who can afford tutors are getting tutors for their kids to, to deal with the craziness of the COVID school year, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and like right now, we we my wife and I had this conversation. We you know we hired a a tutor for just a couple of hours, but like I feel somewhat guilty about it. I want to help my daughter, right? Mm-hmm. But like a lot of people can't afford that, and it just feels wrong to me that in what is supposed to be a public school system, my kid is getting a better education than another kid. And that kid over there, I mean, I'm great. I'm happy for my daughter, but that other kid is at a disadvantage now. That Mm -hmm. other kid's falling behind through no fault of their own. It's just their circumstances. And that's just feels morally wrong to me. So I would like to limit that kind of inequality, even if it's not an inequality of poverty. I mean, where do you think the line should be? You know, I think that's a fair point. I have similar sort of guilt issues about, you know, the, the things that, you know, my daughter gets to do that somebody else doesn't get to do. I'm also very much in the school of thought that says you are never going to. So if if that's the issue, then I think reasonable people can talk about. Is it a matter of helping the kids who can't afford that stuff afford something like that? Or is it an issue of shall we ban rich people from being able to do that, which I think would be dumb, but we can have that conversation. Um, But. I think it's important to acknowledge. that. There has been and never will be anywhere in the world a society in which people don't do more for their own children than other people will. And that if you have resources, you cannot design a society where people with resources won't, to one extent or another, try to do what is best for their own kids. But, you know, to the point of special treatment. And just, it just, that's the way societies works. That's the way the human, you know, human nature works. You know, uh, uh, you know, Fukuyama's book about, you know, you know, political development, he talks about this where there's never been a society in all of human history where people didn't show favoritism for, for kin and for friends over strangers. And that's the nature of politics. And so my problem isn't so much with describing a problem and then having a conversation about coming up with a remedy. My problem is that people start from observations like the one that you did, which I think is a legitimate one, and then leap to this conversation about, quote unquote, socialism or something like that, where I guarantee you people with greater resources and they exist in socialist countries still do favors for their kids um, disproportionately to people without resources. And that was true in Soviet Russia. It's true in Sweden. It's true in every kind of system imaginable because that is the nature of human beings. And so when I, my problem is, is where people turn observations like yours into an indictment of ca- liberal democratic capitalism when it's not one, you know, it's, it's, 
it's the nature of society. So that doesn't mean we don't can't do more to help people who don't have resources. But you are never going to come up with a society where people with advantages aren't going to have more advantages than people without advantages. Um, this is one where I think that conservatives are a little bit overwrought, um, or libertarians, let's put it that way. People who are concerned that capitalism is going away. Capitalism is not going away. Capital. I mean, I'm a capitalist, right? I'm a, I believe in regulated capitalism. Elizabeth Warren is explicitly a capitalist. She believes in more regulation than you would like, but she's, she understands that what generates wealth is, is, is capitalism and enterprise. Um, so I don't think we're anywhere near. I mean, the, the conservatives tend to, oh my God, you're taxing people at $400,000. Uh, okay, we start talking about rolling back the Trump tax cuts at the low end. Now we're talking about raising taxes on people. And there can be some negotiation around that, right? But in general, we're not anywhere near like Im Im impinging on people's you know, liberty uh, in, in, a, in an unacceptable way at this point. I mean, we're not near being a socialist country even Bernie Sanders isn't any, I mean, Bernie Sanders can't even get his ideas adopted as the consensus in the Democratic Party. So I think that while the concerns about overreach uh, against capitalism are warranted in the abstract, they're not an immediate concern. If I thought they were immediate concern, I'd shift more over to your direction. Right now, I think we have too much economic inequality. So I'm sympathetic to my friends on the left who want, you know, a more equality of healthcare, for example, more more equality of education. Um, but you don't you don't believe in sort of punishing people at the top of the distribution. You just want to help people at the bottom of the distribution. Yeah, right? I, I mean, mean, the people. It's like I have the Willie. The, what's it, Willie Sutton? The bank robbery. Mm -hmm. You know, his. I have his view of uh, of of the the wealthy as far as like I'm not trying to punish you. And in fact, I want you to try to to go out and you know start businesses and employ people and do all that great stuff. Um, but if you have lots and lots of money, way more than you need, yes, I would like to take some of your money. Um, to help people at the bottom have more opportunity. And I think there's a human capital argument for that as well. I think conservatives are not good at understanding how much it, how important it is to develop human capital so you have a better workforce and you have more productivity. It makes you a more competitive country. I think that's fair. I will rejoin, I will, I will respond. I think liberals aren't very good at understanding that they're, that they could take every single dime of every single billionaire's net worth throw them into a refrigerator box and it wouldn't pay for a fraction of the things that they think that they want billionaires to pay for. And then you add in the rhetoric. I mean, I, I'm, I'm again, I'm kind of with you that I think the threat of impending socialism is much less than people claim. Um, and I think it was part of this attempt to sort of turn the election into this once again, flight 93 nonsense thing that said, um, you know, there are an enormous number of people writing in places like the New York Times and, and elsewhere talking about abolishing billionaires. And um, that's silly. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's silly. But, you know, I think you you can agree that let's just assume that our positions are the 100 percent most wise point of view possible for our respective sides, that wisdom doesn't always carry the day and silliness sometimes dominates our political discourse. I think you can agree with that yes and there are more people talking about abolishing billionaires than talking like you on on on, on the left these days i don't know i think that's an artifact of social media Possibly. i think it Possibly. yeah i i think that in real life it's not such a big threat if it becomes a threat i'll 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 
be more public about it. But right now it feels like a fringe thing. I will save you a cushion on the ramparts. With <laughs> All right. Hey, well, thank you so much for your patience. Listeners have no idea what he's been put through. You've been standing in a closet in his house. I am um, the victim. We're the victims. The, you were always the victims. That's <laughs> absolutely true. Uh, will Salatan, a Slate Magazine, uh, national correspondent, uh, old friend. Thank you very much for doing this. Hey, thanks, Jonah. So when we started this podcast, um, there were various stegosauri chewing palm fronds um, outside my window, um, which is to say it was a billion frickin' years ago. Um, and this has been exhausting. Love Will. Wanted Will on for a long time. Will's a great guy. Um, I don't know like who or what is to blame for the technological problems. I'm sure it is mostly me um, because of my setup on my computer and where I'm doing this. But you have no idea the length. I mean, we had to resort to blood magic to get this freaking thing done. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I tend to prefer word magic, um, which is, is less gross, but sometimes blood magic is the only thing that'll get it done. Anyway, uh, thanks to Will Salatan for coming on. Um, uh, I know people keep saying that I should have more liberals on and disagree with them more and all that kind of stuff. And so baby steps, you know, Will's a reasonable guy and, and, we had a reasonable conversation and I know people don't, some people don't like all the Trump stuff, but you know, at this point, that's the nature of the bees. Suck it up. So, uh, beyond that, please, uh, sign up for the dispatch, become a paid member of the community. Uh, we're going to have more events, more cool stuff for members of the community coming up in the near future and, in in like gangbusters in 2021. And the more people we get to sign up, the more cool stuff we get to do. And the less we have to resort to blood magic. So uh, thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.